You are listening to the Grace Church Podcast. To learn more about grace, including our gathering times, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Tommy Jones. We've been on this Jonah series for a minute. I remember when I first started this, someone said, how are you going to do five weeks out of the book of Jonah? I think I could do 10. Like there is so much good stuff in this book. And it's a tiny book, and it'll take you less than 30 minutes to read it. But it's, it's, it's like this little caricature of the broken human condition. It's a caricature of, of our frailty as humans and, and our prejudice and our weakness and all this thing. But it's also like this caricature, this snapshot of God's mercy and God's justice and God's forgiveness. It's just so much going on in a few pages. And we've seen this over the last few weeks. We saw that Jonah, um, do, just see if you guys have been paying attention. God called Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh. Did Jonah go? Good job, guys. Um, He went the opposite direction. Does anyone remember the city he went to? What's it called? Tarshish. Look at this. Man, we're like a Bible church. We're one of those places where people know the book. Who saw that coming? And so Jonah goes as far away from God as he possibly can. Uh, He winds up in kind of an odd little situation which is unusual, he winds up getting swallowed by a fish. Remember, he, he winds up in the belly of the beast. And um, I'd say that's a fairly unusual thing. But then he's delivered from the belly of the fish in a strange way too. In Jonah 2.10, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Okay, so this has been a kind of a weird week for Jonah. He was on a boat, and then a storm broke out. And then he realized that he was the cause of the storm. They threw him into the water. He was swallowed by a fish. Three days later, after writing Hebrew poetry for three days in the belly of the fish, he is vomited up on the land. I don't know what happened in your week, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't that. And if it was, you got quite a story going on there. And so that's what's going on with Jonah. He's vomited up on the beach. He's probably feeling a little confused, a little thankful. And then in Jonah chapter 3, which is where we're going to be today, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And it doesn't say it, but I bet God was like, are you listening now? Are you ready? You've been swallowed up, vomited. Are you listening now, Mr. Jonah? And so what's the message Jonah has for the people of Nineveh? Well, in Jonah chapter 1, 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, so God has looked at this city of Nineveh, and God has rendered a judgment on this city. God has said, this city is wicked. Jonah, I want you to go to this city, and I want you to tell them what they're doing wrong. I want you to preach against them. I want you to tell them to repent. And and I think to really understand this story, we need to know a little something about the city of Nineveh. So the city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, the Assyrian Empire was this big, dangerous group of people who were in constant conflict with the nation of Israel. This is a real historical empire, okay? This is a real deal. Nineveh was a real city. And if so, if if Assyria was the empire, then Nineveh was the Death Star. Does that help everybody? Okay, no Star Wars fans? That's all right. Um, It's just a bad city. And they're known for bad things. And most of the bad things they're known for, a lot of them are against the Israelites, Jonah's people. 
And one, they're famous really for two things. So the Ninevites are famous for being fierce warriors, but they would do something inside of war that was a little unusual. They would impale their enemies on a spear, and they would leave them there for like three to five days so that everyone else could see the impaled person. The other thing they would do is when they captured prisoners, they would actually skin them alive. They would fillet their prisoners and, and allow the rest of the world to see it. So these people are fierce warriors. They, they're one of the largest, most dominating people in the world. They are the baddest people on the block at this point in time. You got me? These are the people you don't want to mess with. And Jonah knows this because they have killed his people. And God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go there and talk to those people. So it's kind of understandable why Jonah isn't real fired up about this. These people have killed a lot of his friends. And so in Jonah 3, 3, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. All right. So God has called Jonah. Uh, Jonah has been through a lot. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it. And so in, in the spirit of all the prophets who've come before Jonah, Jonah is going to go to this city. He's going to say, God has, has rendered a judgment. God believes you're doing evil things. Repent, turn back towards God, and you probably won't receive this, or God's going to destroy you. And so Jonah has this long walk, okay? He's at Tarshish, and he's going to walk to Nineveh. And once he gets there, it's going to take him another day just to walk halfway through it, a day and a half. Just to walk. Jonah has a lot of time. So I want you all to use your imaginations for just a second. Okay, y'all ready? This is hard for adults, I know. Use your imagination. If you've got several days to walk from Tarshish to Nineveh, and when you get there, you're going to preach a sermon to the most dangerous people in the entire world, you're going to write a pretty good sermon, aren't you? If I've got that much time, I am writing the sermon of my life. Because I know, I've now seen the power of God. I know God controls the wind and the waves and the whales and all these things. I know God's in charge. I'm going to the most dangerous city in the world. I'm going to preach. I am writing the best sermon the world has ever heard. I'm thinking up props. I'm bringing my hula hoops. I'm bringing my sunflower seeds. Like, I'm, I'm taking the band. The band is going to open up. We're going to have dry ice, a laser light show. And you've never seen what we're about to do in Nineveh. Because the way I feel is I am preaching for my life, literally. And, like, I'm not against a little pain, but I'm not trying to get filleted alive. I got things to do, right? And if I was, you know, completely skinless up here, it would just be a distraction every Sunday. So you can imagine Jonah is going to write the sermon of his life. And he's got a good story to tell him. I mean, he's got, if he's a pastor, he has built up a heck of a testimony. He's been swallowed by a fish. He's been vomited. He's seen God. He is ready to go to this city and absolutely blow the doors off with the best sermon any Nineveh has ever heard. Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for Jonah's sermon? Get ready, because you are about to be moved. Verse 4. Jonah begins by going a day's journey into this city and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he drops the mic and leaves. That's his sermon. That's what you wrote on that walk? He walks into Nineveh and goes, good morning, everybody. I'm Jonah. Um, you're all going to die. Thank you. That's a hard sermon. I mean, he might as well have been preaching to him about money. Like, that is a challenging sermon 
For, I preach some hard stuff, but Jonah looks at the room and says, hey, go, go. That's how he tests his mic. Mic check, mic check. You're all going to die in 40 days. Tip your waiter. <laughs> right? This is a sermon. This is literally the worst sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. This is the single worst sermon. I don't know whether Jonah hates these people or whether he was on a camel riding fast. In 40 days, you're all going to die. I have no idea. But I know this is the most non-compelling message. I mean, he could have told them, hey, guys, guess what? I was in a fish for three days. That's a pretty fun story to share, isn't it? If, if, imagine I started today's message with, hey, guys, listen. Something interesting to me happened this week. I was on a boat with my brother, and it got windy. And my brother threw me out, and I was swallowed by a fish and vomited back up on the bank three days later. Wouldn't you all be like, well, this is going to be an interesting day. He's got a good story to share. But instead, what he says is, everyone is going to die. And they're like, okay. And, and this is his message. But l- let's see what happens. There's, all I can think of is this. They, surely they threw tomatoes at him. It says in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. In the, in the New American Standard Version, it says they believed in God. That was his sermon. And they believed in God. And then it says, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And you put on sackcloth as a sign of remorse and fasting and and, and repentance. And so Jonah walks into a town and says, you're all going to die, and suddenly everyone believes in God. Who does it not say they believed in? Jonah. The worst sermon the world has ever heard. And everyone believes. And how do we know they believed? How do we know the Ninevites believed in God? See, I think a lot of times in American culture, you can say you believe in God because you prayed a prayer when you were six, but there's nothing in your life that absolutely looks like you believe in God. We know that the Ninevites believed in God, not because of what they said, but because of what they did. They began to fast and they put on sackcloth and they turned and their life actually looked like they had some belief. They actually had a lifestyle that matched what they said they thought in their hearts. And everyone in the city begins to fast. We, we preached on fasting last year. Does anyone remember this? Probably not. But I preached and like, I took my time. Like, I wrote messages. I really thought about it. Maybe I should just say, you're all going to die. Because that's what it took for every single person in that community to believe in God. This is the most amazing story I've ever read. In verse 6, it said... When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, the, the, this warning reaches the king of Nineveh, and he rises from his throne, and he takes off his royal robe, and he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits down in the dust. So this, this message that Jonah has preached into this massive city, first off, how many people you even think heard him? You think there was 10,000 people gathered around? I doubt it. He didn't, it's not like he drew a crowd. He didn't do anything. He just walked out there and said, you're all going to die. Maybe 15 people heard it. But then this revival begins to happen. And Jonah has no lights and no special equipment and no great speaking words. And yet God is moving through this village and this city. And people are coming to know God. And the word of this revival has spread all the way to the king. And everyone in this city is being transformed. Not because Jonah had some amazing message, but because God moved and God decided to do a good work. There's probably a good message for us in that, just in that. Maybe God's message is not always bound by the messenger. Maybe too many times we've used the excuse of, I don't know enough. 
Listen, your ability to transform the world is not bound on your knowledge. The spirit of the living God will speak. And in this moment, he does. And the city comes to know God. And this, is, this may be my favorite part of the whole story. This is hilarious. And y'all better laugh because this is funny. Verse 7. Matter of fact, y'all all just fake laugh real quick. That's good. Thank you. Get that out on the front end. Verse 7. This, this is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, do not let the people or the animals or the herds or the flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Okay, I'll tell you the funny part. The whole city is fasting. Just, just out of curiosity, you don't have to raise your hand. Just give me kind of an eye look. Have any of you ever fasted before? Okay, good, good, good. Some of you have. At any point during, will you throw that verse back up to the first part? At any point during your fast, did you make your animals fast? Did y'all catch that? The king's like, all right, listen, everybody's going to fast this time. I, I don't really know. I don't know about this God. I don't know, but I, I'm a little scared because I, I just, this doesn't seem right. And so we're all going to fast. Uh, goat, you're fasting. And the goat is just sitting there hitting his head on a bowl. He's like, what What I do? You know, I'm just a goat. And he's like, everybody's going to fast. And then he says, cover everybody with sackcloths. Now you've got gerbils with sackcloths and cats. Every single animal in this village is fasting. And then look what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? I don't know what I'm doing. I, I just found out about this God like 30 minutes ago. I have no idea what I'm doing. But I know this. Everybody's fasting. Goats, cats, camels. I don't know what other animals they had there. I've seen the nativity scene. There's a donkey, probably a rooster. Who knows? The king says, I don't know. But I know this. We're all fasting. Why? Because the fear of God has led him to some wisdom. The fear of God has led this man to some wisdom. He has been judged by God. He has been judged by God to be wicked. Jonah shows up, says, you're all going to die. And the king says, everybody's fasting. And what we see here is a righteous response to God's judgment. In the life of this king, we see a righteous response to the judgment of God. Y'all remember this, 33 seconds before Jonah's sermon started. And I say 33 seconds because that's probably how long his sermon took. 33 seconds before his sermon started, everybody in Nineveh thought what they were doing was right. They were the holders of right and wrong. They would decide what was good and evil. And they thought that impaling people and flaying people, they were fine with those things. They were the kings of their world. And now they've received the judgment of God. And how do they respond? They repent. They turn. See, I, I feel like this is a, a part of the Bible we struggle with. Matter of fact, I read a lot lately about people deconstructing their faith. And like if you're deconstructing your faith to like try to figure out who God is and not just have the faith of your parents, man, I applaud that. But too often I think what deconstruction is, is I'm going to deconstruct the parts of God that I don't like and I'm going to reconstruct a God who looks a lot more like me. Because that's a God I can get with. Because this whole judgment thing, I'm just not down with that. Like we think uh, God is love. What about Jesus, right? God can't be, God doesn't judge. 
Because there's this whole Jesus thing. And so we, we, we typically think God is either judgmental or he is loving. And we pick camps on this thing. And you either end up in the all judgment camp, which makes you super fun. Everyone loves having all judgment person around. Or you end up with the God is love camp. <laughs> right? It's all good. God does whatever. You know, I can do whatever I want because God loves me. And so we end up in one of these two camps that it's either God is love or God is judgment. And so what we believe is that God couldn't possibly be the fullness of both because that makes no sense to us. But perhaps it's bigger than that. Perhaps there's more to it. Maybe we're not supposed to pick a side because maybe God is the fullness of both. Is it loving for God to never judge my behavior? Would God truly love me if he never judged my behavior? I mean, I was reading uh, Twitter the other day. It's my favorite of the social medias. And there was a story of these seventh grade boys on a bus. Maybe some of you saw this. And they were beating up a nine-year-old girl. Any of you guys see this? There's a story of seventh grade boys, and they're beating up a nine-year-old girl. And now imagine that you're on that bus, and you have the power to intervene. And I'm not a big guy, but I can handle a seventh grade boy, all right? <laughs> And so ima imagine you have the power to intervene in this, but now imagine that you don't. You don't want to judge them because they're just boys being boys. I don't want to be judgmental. No, no, I think we can all agree that some wrong is happening, that someone is being harmed, and not just the little girls being harmed. Those boys are being harmed if that's what they believe is righteous. If, th if that's what they think is the right way to live, then they're being harmed for the rest of their lives from ever having a legitimate good relationship with a woman. And so there is a lot of harm happening on that bus. To not intervene, would that make me good? Would that make me loving? The, the opposite of judgmental is not loving. The opposite of judgmental is apathetic. And we do not want an apathetic God. We do not want a God who's apathetic towards our sin. God creates people in his image. And God gets to decide what's right and wrong. And maybe you're thinking, well, well, my particular sin isn't harming anyone. You don't get to decide that. We're not the keepers of what's right and wrong. There has to be a day in us and we say, God, well, I don't like it. My human desire is different. But in this book, it seems to say that, that this thing is wrong. And so, God, I surrender this thing to you whether I like it or not because I will not be the one who decides right and wrong. You will. And that's a hard place to be. Because what we want to do is we want to say, yes, God judges. And you know what he judges? Your sin. Not mine. Because if I decide what's right and wrong, you know what I do? I judge you and I justify me. I'm like, ooh, God, just help these people be more like me. <laughs> right? That's what we do. That's our human nature. We want a God of justice if someone steals from me. I want a God of justice if, if someone, you know, someone hurts my children. I want a God of justice. I just don't want a God whose justice is carried out on my sins. What we want to do is be God, not worship him. We want to decide what's right and wrong. And so it must be settled in me that God will determine what is right and wrong in my life. And it stinks. And it stings. And so you know what's easier? To deconstruct God and build a new one. Deconstruct God and build a new one that really likes what I do. He doesn't like what you do. Or you, you, you. But he likes me.
Because God couldn't possibly be both loving and judgmental. But again, what, what's the purpose of God's judgment? Why would it, let, let's just assume for a second that he is both loving and judgmental. Why would a loving God ever judge people? In verse 10, I think we find out. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So just leave that up there for When God saw, God judged them. God says, hey, I want you to be aware of your wickedness, and I'm going to destroy you. Bad things are going to be happening. Because of God's judgment, the people turned. The people changed. And because the people turned and they changed, what did they receive? Mercy. God judges us so that he can show us mercy. God judges us so that we might know evil and good. God judges us so that we might receive forgiveness. God judges us not because he wants to stop us from having fun, but because he wants to unleash the power of God in us. His judgment is based in his love. You can't separate them. And so if you want a God who's just all love, then he is. You want a God who's all judgment? He is. He's the fullness of everything. But it is his judgment that sets us free. God's grace without truth is empty. I mean, I think about this all the time. If, if, you're, if I'm walking you know, towards a cliff and you guys all look at me and say, you know what, it's okay, he's got a good heart. He's walking towards the edge of a cliff and it's a you know, 300 foot drop, but don't say anything to him because he's got a good heart. Is, is that love? No, I need, I need someone to say, hey, uh, there's a cliff there, and you're walking towards it. And I tell you that because I love you. A good God would never be apathetic towards our sin. A good God would judge us so that we might receive grace and mercy. Go back to verse 6. This is what happens when people have a righteous understanding of God's judgment. It says, when Jonah's warning, which was God's judgment, when God's judgment reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Keep that up there for me. When God's judgment reached this king, you know what he did? He stepped off his throne and offered the rule and reign of his life to God. Now, he could have gotten mad. He could have deconstructed. He could have gotten rid of this God and found an easier one. He could have just kept impaling people and flaying them alive. But when this king receives the judgment of God, this king understands it, steps up, takes off his robe and goes, you know what, God? I am no longer in charge. I surrender the rule and reign of my life to you. It was the judgment of God that set this man free to understand the love of God. So we need both. And there's a movement, in, especially in the American church, to say, well, I've got Jesus, you know, freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I want you to hear this. The blood of Jesus Christ freed you from eternal damnation, but it did not make you God. We still must allow God to order rule and reign over our lives. We still must surrender the power of our lives to a power that's higher. Just because you're covered in the blood of Christ doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. If you think the blood of, of Christ is an excuse to go on sinning, then you don't really fully understand what the blood of Christ is. The blood of Christ doesn't give us permission to sin. It gives us the power to not. 
And you, you, before I knew Christ, man, I had no problem with sin. I was really good at it. I would say I was probably one of the top four sinners in this room. Like super successful. I don't mean to boast. <laughs> but I was strong. I was a strong sinner. So were many of you. And then you come to know Christ, and, and you experience his love, and then you experience God's judgment in areas of... Have y'all ever been convicted of something that you didn't even know was a sin before you met Jesus? You're like, that's wrong? I can't keep doing that? How's that hurting anybody? But what I find is every time I surrender a part of my life to him, you know what I experience on the other side? Freedom. Freedom. Every time I receive his judgment with a righteous attitude, and I yield a part of my life to him. What's waiting for me on the other side is freedom. And so I begin to think, maybe God knows what's best for me after all. We don't get to decide what's right and wrong. And the story of Jonah is a story of a, of a far-off place and a far-off world and a far-off language and far-off things, but it sure feels home to me today because there's so many times when I I, I wanted a God who was love when I wanted to keep on sinning. But I wanted a God who was judgment when your sin was bothering me. But the truth is, my God is the fullness of both. And to receive his judgment in my life is to experience his loving mercy in my life. And I, I just want to say this too. And I, if, there's, if there's never a part of your life where you're feeling God's judgment then it may be time for you to come back to the altar again. Something in working. If you're never receiving the judgment of God in any area of your life, then I would almost argue the God you've fallen in love with is you. Because occasionally our God speaks, and we're convicted, and we feel those things. But on the other side of those things isn't shame and guilt. On the other side of that conviction... It's freedom. Freedom to be the sons and daughters God designed you to be. And so today, we turn over rule and reign of our lives to the proper king. He will decide what's right and wrong. And that must be settled in us. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. And again, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Podcast.